Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Faces podcast, brought to you by Earth Refuge, the world's first legal think tank dedicated to climate migration. My name is Laura, and I am a correspondent with Earth Refuge. In this episode, I'm joined by Helen Dale, a PhD researcher at the Centre for Sustainable Entrepreneurship at the University of Groningen. In today's conversation, we will focus on adaptation and mitigation as approaches to tackling climate change. All right, so perhaps to start, you could tell us a little bit more about your academic background and how you've come to your current position. Um, so I am Kenyan, uh, so I did my bachelor's in Kenya uh, in chemistry, so I started with the natural sciences, um, and after that I worked in manufacturing and um, lab technician and then uh, chief chemist and uh, head of lab, so it, it went like that. in a span of maybe, yeah, it went pretty fast, like uh, three and a half years. Um, and then I moved into research, um, agricultural research, still using my skills in uh, chemistry. Um, and we were working um, specifically on sugarcane and sugarcane <coughs> development in Kenya. And, um, yeah. I worked there for two and a half years. We set up a pilot project, uh, which has stations where they do the testing of the sugarcane and quality control and um, development of that industry. Um, however, I felt like um, the connection between people and science was missing for me a bit. Um, and then I tried to look, I wanted to do uh, a master program abroad. So I tried to look uh, at the UK, at Norway, the Netherlands, you know, I was trying to look at universities and, mm -hmm. and possibilities for funding. Um, and I was lucky enough to get fund environmental management at the University of Twente in the Netherlands. And so I moved to the Netherlands and I did that uh, uh, as a master program, up to which I worked with Philips as a trainee for a while and then started my PhD. Um, and throughout uh, my career, let me say, I, I've really tried to ask the question why people do things they do. Um, so not only as citizens, but also uh, policymakers and governments. Why do they make the decisions um, that they do? And um, given different contexts, they do come to different conclusions. And what I have come to learn, and I'm still learning during my PhD, is always the situation is more complex than uh, what is reported like in, in, in the news or what is seen by, you know, outsiders. It's we, when you're dealing with global issues or national issues or regional issues, it's always more complex than it really seems. And the solutions really do need a lot of collaboration. Um, and that's where it gets uh, messy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yes. 
it's really fascinating to see how you have been in so many different fields. I mean, always linked. You've had such a long career, it seems. Um, I consider myself a young researcher still because I'm uh, doing my PhD now, so I, I, I'm still on that steep like learning curve, and I'm trying to get um, my my place. I do like that I'm able to do uh, or research issues that I find close to my heart, such as um, the effect of climate, environment on businesses, and the effect of businesses on climate and environment. That's what I'm, I'm looking at now. Um, so I'm, in that sense, I think I'm very lucky. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah, and I hope to learn more, but also share a lot more. Yeah. Okay. And day to day, what does your current um, job entail? Um, so I am involved in teaching um, for a master in climate, uh, in, sorry, in sustainable entrepreneurship at our campus. Um, I do help uh, carry out labs, what we call labs, so the more practical sense of teaching in that we introduce the students to more real-life practical issues. Uh, and since they are dealing with sustainable entrepreneurship, we would like to expose them to real-life entrepreneurs who are either sustainable or trying to be sustainable and working with those entrepreneurs so that when they are done with the course, they have sort of an expectation of what's out waiting for them out there. Um, of course, I'm also busy doing my own research, which involves uh, the Warden Sea World Heritage Area. Uh, maybe you know about it. Mm -hmm. it's, uh, um, it stretches across three countries, so Denmark, Germany, and the Netherlands. And I'm working with entrepreneurs in this area, uh, trying to find ways in which they can be more sustainable and specifically in the tourism industry. Um, so it's been really an adventure because um, when I came in, I, I really didn't know anything about tourism. Uh, and maybe I had more negative than positive about tourism. And having worked with them for now three years, I, I sort of relate to the issues that they face, uh, trying to make a living and um, also trying to make sure that the area is still preserved for future generations. And how do you do that? Um, yeah, in today's world. And maybe you can put up solar panels and uh, have waste recycling, but then that doesn't account for the carbon footprint from the visitor. So, you know, it's, it's a really complex... Mm, a very difficult question, yeah. I can imagine. So, uh, um, that's day-to-day, -day, that's what I'm dealing with. Yeah. And do you find that it's becoming a more relevant issue or an issue that more entrepreneurs and companies are thinking about how to be sustainable? I would say large companies are quite aware. Whether they act on it or not mm -hmm. act on it, whether they greenwash or not, they, they are very aware of, of sustainability. When it comes to the enterprises that I deal with, they are mainly small and medium-sized enterprises. Um, so the first thing I had to sort of grapple with is what is your definition of sustainability? Um, because for some, sustainable means being in business. 
for a long time, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so then um, having to sit down and talk and discuss what does sustainability mean to you, uh, what do, does the environment mean to you, what does the culture of the area mean to you. And um, I would say everyone is well-meaning. It's just that it's not very clear what actions to take as a small and medium-sized enterprise in order to um, become sustainable. And that's why, as a university, we try to work with them to together find solutions Mm -hmm. that are practical and can be applied on the ground. So not only, like, mention it, like, in the advertisements and things, but really look into uh, the visitors' stay from the time they come, they arrive, and how they tour the area. How can you make that more sustainable? Okay, and now thinking about actions that can be taken to address climate change and sustainability, maybe we can turn to talk about climate adaptation and climate mitigation. Mm -hmm. So as I understand it, climate mitigation is focused on reducing emissions and stabilizing levels of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, Mm -hmm. while climate adaptation is more concerned with current climate issues and adapting to changes that have already happened. Mm-hmm. Could you maybe elaborate more on this distinction or give your uh, take on it? Yeah, I think you, you sort of outlined it uh, quite well. Um, the climate mitigation has to do with um, slowing the rate of change. So because of development and how rapidly we have developed as, as human beings, um, the the carbon emissions, the greenhouse gas emissions, have been so drastic that it's leading to more rapid climatic changes than would normally happen, you know, uh, if we didn't exist, let's say. That's um, uh, a nice prospect, <laughs> but yeah, that, that's, that's the, the point. So mitigation goes into alternatives. Uh, to reduce this impact of human uh, activities on the planet. So alternative energy sources, so moving to more green energy sources, such as wind, such as solar, you know, um, changing that, uh, looking into transportation and seeing what systematic changes can be done um, <clears throat> in terms of reducing maybe vehicles. Uh, I know there's a really big move to electric, um, and I think that's nice. Um, but when you look at it globally, um, yeah, electric vehicles would work here. But if, if you look at, for example, uh, Kenya, where I come from, uh, in the rural areas, you will be... Where would you charge yes, it, you know? Exactly. Uh, so, um, and, and I, I think it's something people have to deal with in terms of looking at also the different stages of development of different countries. Um, and looking at, for example, economies, some of the biggest or, or rapidly growing economies are in Africa, uh, which means in a few decades' time, we'll have to grapple with more traffic. With more, because that's how they're going. They're following the example of, of oh, previous economies, yes. And, and they are 
looking to build highways. They are looking to increase um, transportation to cities, and, and cities are growing bigger. And I mean, much bigger than, than cities are growing here. So, because there's also land, there's space, and there's people. So, um, I think looking at it on a global landscape, we need more systematic um, like approaches. Um, so not only looking at um, electric vehicles, but actually looking at, for example, transportation systems. Can we improve, let's say, railway systems in Kenya before people get used to having their own car? Because, yeah, now the, the, the ambition of everyone who's working is, I need my own car because I want to travel everywhere in the country and... But if, if we could improve, for example, our railway systems, then that would be a better solution. So that's, okay, to cut a long story short, that's what mitigation is about. It's about um, trying to decrease the rate at which we are emitting greenhouse gases that are accelerating climate change. Um, on the other hand, climate adaptation looks, uh, recognizes that the climate is changing and we need to prepare for the effects of these changes. Um, so that goes more into, for example, coastal protection, um, reforestation. So uh, things that would make life possible, for example, in coastal areas or island populations. So, uh, looking more into, for example, nature-based solutions. I know like here in the Netherlands, they have uh, in the eastern part a uh, project where they call it a room for the river. So what they looked at is they continually had flooding in these areas, in, in, in the cities, um, and decided to sort of acquire some agricultural land and acquire previously um, riverbed area and sort of make it, take it back to nature. So have more room for the river so that you will decrease the, the floods uh, that, are, that are going to happen uh, in case of increased rainfall. And, and it's helped in, in the areas where this has been implemented. Um, and nature-based solutions, uh, for example, mangrove forest for coastal protection. So it's really restoring nature and helping you um, adapt to the changes that are coming. So increase sea level, meaning you need more coastal area. And if you have mangrove forests, you have that protection by default. Uh, and the plus thing is it's a forest, so it's also uh, getting carbon out of the area. So it's, it's like a win-win situation. Uh, and yes, probably you need to move more inland and uh, probably lose some fishing areas. But if you look at the gains in the long term, so I think climate adaptation is quite long term in perspective. So you look at the gains in the long term, it will make life possible uh, in spite of the changes that are already happening uh, due to climate and, and due to our development as, as human beings. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Would you say then that it is more important for societies to focus on adaptation or is it a, a matter of context and different contexts need mitigation first or adaptation exactly. first? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I think uh, 
we are late. Um, so it's been, I think this cry of sustainability and climate adaptation and climate change has been there since the 70s, you know, um, or even before that, if, if you really look keenly. Um, and uh, um, the urgency and the actions, right now we are late. So I do think we need to sort of burn the candle at both ends. So we do need to do mitigation because we don't want it going any faster mm -hmm. than it's going already. It's already overwhelming the forest fires and the floods. And so we don't want it going any faster. But at the same time, we want uh, populations to be able to survive uh, and inhabit the areas that they are in and more than that thrive. And I think um, if we do not adapt, then we will lose a big part of the population, unfortunately, and we will lose a big part of uh, human settlement. So adaptation is not an option, um, but neither is mitigation. We have to do both. Uh, and I think in some areas, like you sort of mentioned, uh, adaptation is more critical because they are already facing these challenges. So they do need to change. Um, and in some areas, mitigation is more relevant. So um, it really depends. Um, and, and we need to do it like practically. So not buying carbon credits and things like this, which is good, okay? But yeah, look at it more like how can we do more as both the West but also as developing countries to uh, sort of stem this, this change and um, allow our people to also live lives that, that they can be happy about now and in the future. Yeah. And what do you think are the major barriers to implementation of climate adaptation strategies? If you could maybe name some, even though I can imagine, as you said, yeah. It's, yeah. it's just very complicated when there are so yeah. many factors and agents involved. Yeah. Um, so for climate adaptation, climate adaptation governments, I think the major barriers is um, context, um, because I think most people look at it in in the way that okay, fine, if mangrove forests worked here, they can of course work in another location, and so um, I really think people need to contextualize a lot more. Uh, I do think that local communities do need to take the lead um, and be assertive about it. So as much as uh, sometimes we blame the West a lot for, for taking the lead, and, but it, I think it's also human and natural to try and help. Mm -hmm. However, I think uh, more awareness and more assertiveness is needed in local communities that they do take the lead and they do say, what they want and what they need. So, for example, if for them uh, fishing is a priority, then they should say, well, we want to fish because we are a fishing community. How can we get com um, solutions that enable us to fish? Or if it's farming, well, we want to farm. And what do we want to farm? Um, and and um, these kinds of solutions um, might need input from the national government, but also international input, but let the lead come from the local communities. Um, I think that's one barrier that, 
that we face constantly because when the project comes from top down, what happens is once it's sort of implemented, there's no continuity. And if you don't have the locals um, sort of helping to continue the projects, uh, the experts go away and the project sort of dwindles or they cut the trees again or because mm -hmm. for them it's not... It's not um, something they, 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 they saw as useful. So I think that is when we don't have time um, to do this uh, consultation. But I do need, I do think more effort needs to be put there. Um, the other thing, which is quite um, obvious, is funding. Um, and I think um, I'm more radical in the way I think about funding. So I, I do think uh, polluter pays principle is really good. So those who have uh, contributed the most should, uh, to, to let's say greenhouse gases, should also contribute the most towards uh, funding for adaptation. But I. The, the, the thing is, when this happens, is that the funding comes with strings attached or with solutions already booked. So I do feel uh, that we should also ask local communities, what kind of contributions could you make uh, for the adaptation solution? And it could be monetary, uh, because I think uh, developing countries are underestimated in terms of monetary contributions. But if you look at their buying power, it, it's something to be reckoned with. So I, I think we should not, um, like, all, all of a sudden say, you know, you receive and you don't give anything. Because I think anything you get for free, you don't value as much. Um, and, and when you are invested in it, be it in manpower, it in meetings that you attend, you know, there has to be some kind of investment from people who benefit from this uh, contribution. And in that way, you have a joint investment. And if you have a joint investment, then there is more likelihood of success rather than having investments coming from one side. Um, and in that way, the community also loses confidence, I think, because they feel like, one, we don't have resources, so we have to always ask for resources. Um, but when you build that confidence in them, that, hey, okay, fine, maybe you don't have the money, but then you have ideas that we can work with, or you have people who are ready to volunteer time, because it's their community uh, to build this diet, or to build these dams, or to plant these trees, then you have more uptake because it's a joint investment, they feel empowered, and, and therefore they are more motivated to do even more uh, beyond whatever solution um, comes out of, of the project. So I think um, funding, but also this joint, this idea of it should be joint um, is missing a lot. And um, I hope like in the coming years, given how COVID has sort of changed the world now, um, the people look uh, also to developing countries for solutions and, and try and worked and how can we enhance that rather than bringing in more and more experts 
try to use schools on the ground and, and how can we use these ideas. And I think that way we could also have more innovation um, in terms of local solutions. Uh, but that's just my two cents. <laughs> yeah. Oh, thank you. That, that's a really interesting take, I think, and it really uh, brings together nicely the importance of locally led and the communities exactly. who are most affected taking charge of what is going to be most important to them, because yeah. those are the ones, those are the, the communities most likely to be affected by climate change. Exactly. Um for example, I know I don't know if I'm allowed to use this, uh, but I saw on your website uh, about the the drought in Kenya, for example, um, in in the arid and semi-arid lands or region. Mm -hmm. And for me, it's it's annoying because we have this perennially. This is not the first time this has happened. We have. Every two years, there is a drought in, in, in the northern land. So it's a perennial problem that has existed for a while. Uh, and what usually happens is, um, I think for the past years, I don't know how far it's been this year because I haven't been home for a while. I'm in the Netherlands now. But I know when I left Kenya, what would happen is the Red Cross would have a number and you would donate as Kenyans to that number. And actually they got, sometimes they got so much donation in terms of money, they would say stop, you know. Because, yeah, Kenya is, is a country of 50 million people. Mm -hmm. and, and even if someone would donate five shillings, or, or and that's our, our currency, or ten, the, the amount would be enough, you know. Um, however, no one's looking into long-term solutions. Because every time this happens, there's either donation, there's either the international community coming in. It's always um, uh, feeding them for the next six months or the next uh, 12 months, you know. Um, and, and that is applaudable. However, that's short term. Mm -hmm. People need to look more into what, what is causing this uh, drought and how can we mitigate against it. Because in these areas, there are some rivers, there are some rivers, you know. Why are they drying up? Um, I know there was a, a project, I think, launched by the Netherlands. It was called uh, Just Dig. It was all, also around that area. And, and they were saying, and, and I don't know how factual this is, but they were saying that if you plant more trees, because trees are rain-making, they, they attract rain. So we need to green the area more. Um, and maybe we need to do it artificially, but we need to look into those solutions and see how can we prevent this perennial problem every two years you have a drought, you know, and then we have to feed people and, um, yeah, we have to donate and with the COVID, you know, everyone's now um, economically tied, so maybe mm -hmm. the donations aren't coming in as, as they were in previous years, so you're stuck with a problem that you always fix um, on the surface, but you don't go into uh, looking at how can we have a systematic solution for this and so that we do not have, in a 10 years' time, we do not have this problem anymore. Yeah. Mm. 
maybe that also relates to what you said about innovation and how if the people on the ground are invested in something, they would also be more interested in really changing it. Yeah, um, they are really, you know, they they are nomads, so they are nomadic, and I like that they can practice, you know, their their, 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 uh, traditional way of living, you know, they move from place to place, and they move with cattle. So when when there is a drought, um, yes, there is the humanitarian um, outcry, but they are also losing their impact on them as people because they really value these animals and, and they lose them because they can't get uh, water and enough pasture for them. So really, we do need to look into a systemic solution so they don't, they, they're not traumatized every two years by, you know, lots of animals. They have been building up this stock of animals and then they lose mm-hmm. them in, in a year or two. Yeah, so... Yeah, it pains me because <laughs> I'm Kenyan, but the, yeah, it's, I, I really feel like we need to do more than just give food and give aid and uh, look much more long term and see in the long term what, what can we do. Yes, yeah. And do you know of any examples, maybe positive examples, where such long term thinking is being implemented? Um. Or is I'm it all sure when, when, when I'm, No, I, I'm sure they are. I'm sure they are quite a number. Um, I know quite a number of coastal projects in uh, Bangladesh. Um, I remember when I was very young, there was this huge, you know, farmer in, in Ethiopia. And since then, they are one of the leading countries when it comes to land management um, because they sort of learned from that, but also the experts and, and the locals have worked together to really boost agriculture. Um, I know right now the political uh, situation is a bit uh, shaky in Ethiopia, but in terms of uh, food security, they have come from far in, in a couple of years, you know, and, and that's really to become one of the leading examples of proper land management in the world. So I think in, in, in that sense, that's one example when, where it's been done right, you know. Uh, rather than stopping at feeding people, you really look at how is the land being managed and how can we improve uh, the management of the land so that there is no more erosion. Uh, there's catchment of rain when, when there is rain, but there's also greening of the area so that it can allow for as in others. So I think Ethiopia is a good example. Um, I know um, my memory fails me a bit, but when I was doing my master, I was looking at flood um, mitigation in different cities around the world. Um, and at that time, the U.S. was looking into how they could protect uh, their coastal area. Sorry. Yeah. Their coastal area. And on what they were doing in terms of coastal protection and also room for 
water storage and water capture in the city. So not only uh, building, you know, higher dams, but also creating like um, parks where uh, in case it rains, they had quite a big storage area and it, it served as, you know, recreation because you had a pond then when you had a heavy rain, but it also helped the city to manage the water, um, um, the, 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 the flood water from rain, so specifically rainwater. So I think such collaborations make sense because you, you, you are sort of at the same level of development. It's just that one city is doing better than the other in the way they manage their, their rainwater. And so you help each other with this knowledge. And um, I know from, from the U.S., they, they were quite surprised because for them, it's not usual to see water like running mm -hmm. through the city, you know. Um, and it took a lot of planning and development. Um, but in the end, they, they did get solutions that fit their context. So there are places in the world that are already doing this. Um, so it's not impossible. Um, it's just it's not like a policy thing that that's uh, global, let's say. So um, yeah, maybe it should be. Uh, maybe we should look more long term. Okay, not maybe we should look more long term. Um, but it's not something that's really a prerequisite. Um, yeah, people like quick solutions, and then you say, well, we've done it, we've ticked that box, until it happens again. Mm -hmm. And and usually it happens worse. So. Mm, it is nice to see that there are some examples of long-term thinking, and maybe this can inspire um, more such work and yeah. less uh, simply stopping the problem or making it go away for for a small amount of time. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, as we move to maybe our final questions now, do you think that the implementation of adaptive measures like the ones we've been speaking about can help in preventing climate-induced displacement of communities? Or is some level of climate migration inevitable at this stage? That's a tough one. <laughs> Uh, do I think it can help? Of course, uh, yes. Just going back to um, the Kenyan example, these uh, nomadic families have to move, um, and not now because they, it's a tradition, but because uh, the area where they live is is uh, yeah, it's dry. So they, they 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 are forced to move at least for some time. To the centers where they have food distribution and, and things like that, and and we need to avoid that. Mm -hmm. And I think the best way to do it is through adaptation and really looking at a long-term solution for this drought problem. Um, so that's already an instance where I think climate adaptation could reduce the the migration. Um, occurrences and that's in an inland situation but you also have coastal situations where you know um, because of flooding or uh, increased sea level and, and, and like the severity of storms uh, coastal communities have had to move 
uh, or yeah, the, 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 the property is destroyed. So for some time, they, they are refugees for some time before they get their life back together. So I think climate adaptation really can serve as a gate uh, and a prevention of this. Um, like I say, look more long term rather than short term. So uh, look at where these communities are situated, um, what is their immediate needs, and how can they adapt? Because they are already being affected by climate. And they are not going to wait, so we need to act now. And I think the best way to act is adaptation. Is it going to solve everything? No, I don't think so. I, I do think, um, for example, some adaptation might mean that they need to move uh, with, with, with consultation to another area um, that's safer. Um, however, in the long term, it could be to their benefit. But then you you will be giving like sort of guarantees, you know. So um, I, I think it it um, will not change or 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 it will not um, solve all migration issues. Um, but it will reduce the number greatly if if we were more targeted in, in our efforts to, to uh, carry out climate adaptation uh, strategies. Yeah, and I think that's the best we can do because, like I said before, we are late, so we have to deal with the consequences. And unfortunately, it's the most vulnerable who um, end up suffering. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you for that answer, and thank you for all the all the rest of the questions you have answered today. You've really given me a lot to think about and brought up some things that I had not thought about before. Okay. Um, for a final question, if you could give Earth Refuge one piece of advice or an important area that maybe we should research further or address when we are drafting toolkits and promoting awareness what might that be? Um, yeah, uh, I think one, I would like to complement the, the effort of having Art Refuge in, in the past years because I think it's a really, um, really good way of looking at climate adaptation, uh, I mean, climate change consequences and how um, climate adaptation or other strategies can feed into this. So um, I think it, it goes closer to the point uh, in terms of priorities. We do need to prioritize people. Um, and uh, I think this really goes close to, to the heart of, of the issue when it comes to prioritizing people and vulnerable people. So I really want to compliment you for, for um, and, and the entire organization for setting it up. And um, I haven't had time to look through everything. Um, however, I'm, I'm really like pushing for more empowerment of also local communities. Mm -hmm. So that's that's the one thing. Um, if more people will try to do more empowerment and collaborations with local communities, uh, 
So not only getting the stories out there, but also looking for solutions with them. That, that I think, would maybe turn the tide, um, mm. but also make them feel hard um, and, and also give them this um, confidence to suggest solutions that they might be holding and we as experts, you know, haven't thought about. So uh, really, um, uh, what is it called? Consulting and, and uh, trying to empower local communities and, and uh, groups. That, that would be my, my, my suggestion, I think. Okay. Well, thank you for those kind words. And um, definitely, I also think empowerment is important. And it is my hope that with Earth Re Refuge, we can form connections between people, with the people who we interview, and then our audience, and maybe people can come together and start thinking about more solutions or be inspired by, by other people on the platform. Yeah, sure. Thanks. No, thanks for having me. I've, I've really like enjoyed uh, the discussion, and uh, yeah, looking forward to seeing what uh, more developments are there. Now that I, I know your website, I'll be like uh, checking out and seeing what's going on. And um, let's keep the contact. I think. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Thank you so much again. It's been a, a really lovely conversation.